0: Hi, I'm Dr. Mark Donohue. Join us for our new podcast series, FXomics. We'll be exploring the new technologies of integrative medicine, including genomics, metabolomics, the microbiome, and many more fields that are transforming healthcare. We're focusing on how they apply to practitioners and how we can incorporate them into our patient care. We aim to make these exciting and sometimes challenging fields relevant to you and your practice. Search for FXomics on your favourite podcast platform and we look forward to your company.
1: Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us in the studio again today is Dr. Mark Donoghue, who earned his medical degree from Sydney Uni in 1980, and he worked throughout the central coast of New South Wales honing his medical skills, where his interest in integrative medicine sparked because his patients weren't fitting into those boxes of diagnoses and treatments which were drummed into him in medical school. Mark is considered, and this is where we joke, one of the father's uncle's grandfathers of integrative medicine in Australia, and he's been the vanguard for patient health throughout his whole career, and I warmly welcome you back into FX Medicine. It's good to be reversing (laughs) ageing. It's
0: very good to be reversing. I'm going down the scale. I don't want to be the great-grandfather of this area. (laughs) One day, mate. One day I will read that word. Mm -hmm.
1: Evolutionary medicine, which sounds a little bit weird as a topic. It It sounds a little bit... Uh, esoteric. Um,
0: What do we mean by that term? There's a way medicine owns the category of diseases, right? Basically, medicine is a uh, trade union. We've defined the things, diseases, it's called nosology. And by definition, a disease is a failure of biology leading to pathology, leading usually to um, death or at least permanent disability. So we have this idea, you probably remember, we would have all been through it, this kind of bowl of homeostasis, that a person in homeostasis kind of goes to the bottom of the bowl. Disease pushes them out. If they flip over the edge, you're dead. And if, they, if you don't flip over the edge, you come back to a level of reasonable health. Well, the problem is we've beaten many of the diseases. Medicine works. You know, my profession has done some good stuff to stop people dying, and medicine, when it's worked and it's got rid of many of the fatal diseases, we know how to manage heart attacks, we know how to manage a whole lot of things, what the problem is we start to fiddle and medicine reverses and says, hey, maybe we're also preventive medicine. Maybe we can take those techniques that we use, which drugs, surgery, radiotherapy, these type of things that work magically in the extreme and then move them back along the, the road a bit. Evolutionary medicine is a branch of evolutionary biology. It's a medicine which says, why does something happen? So the critical thing that medicine has missed is not that it's failed in any scientific sense, but it says, what has happened? And the failure of medicine, in a sense, has been to say, why does it happen? The what happens, you've got drugs for, you intervene, you chop off disease, you save lives. The why does it happen is much more a human desire to know. People get empowered... By finding out why illness occurs, why am I suffering chronic fatigue, why is my cholesterol rising, why, is my, um, why are my muscles malfunctioning, I'm building up lactic acid. So evolutionary medicine comes back to a different state that says there's an adaptive state. It's not the same as good health, but it's certainly not the same as disease. When there is a stress on the body, the whole Hanselier type of stress being psychological, physical, cold, hot or anything else, when that happens, the body enters a state of adaptation and it's really easy to misinterpret that as disease and to go full bore with the drugs that are very powerful and make the mistake of not finding out why the person's sick. Evolutionary medicine and evolutionary biology are two branches to say, hey, hang on, have a think about how we developed over the millennia. Over the millions of years of evolution, there are processes in place which are adaptation, which when they're going on, we should respect the body and work with it and work back to recovery. And the best known one around the place has been what's a pyrexia? What's high temperature? What does it mean and what do we do about it? Doctors always regarded pyrexia as a thing to be controlled. So we'd jump in with Panadol or we would jump in with things to drop the temperature of a person without actually recognizing that the temperature was important in promoting an aggressive immune response to defeat a pathogen. So that was a very good example of we were doing something to drop the temperature, that prolonged the illness. Jumping in with antibiotics early, we've now learned a lesson with antibiotics. One is that if you jump in early, you eventually get antibiotic resistance. But the other is most people get over infections by themselves and are more resilient for having got over the infection. So there are processes that go on in the body all the time that we think of as treatable disorders And that if we step back from it, we can think, no, that's a body trying to adapt to something. What is it adapting to, and how can we do something about it? We talk about an adaptive response, yes, but we
1: also get maladaptive responses. And the perfect example is shock. Shock will try to save you to a point. Mm -hmm. It will close off the periphery to to, um, ensure blood flow to the vital organs, the brain, the heart, the viscera. Um, uh, So it will close down the peripheries. But there comes a point where it just goes to hell with it. And in fact, you get vasodilation yes. and it just says, I've tried. Yep. So, you know, is that really a piecemeal last ditch attempt at saying, hey, listen, I can't I can't um, starve the peripheries forever. I'm going to have to feed them even though you're bleeding yeah. out that arm. So I have to do this vasodilatory response. Or is it just, I oh, are to hell with it. You're going to die anyway. So let's kill you quick.
0: No, the, I think you're right. The body does make choices all the time of, is this sacrifice worth making? So, there is always in adaptive responses the, the thing to remember is you lose something along the way. The heat stress response, the shock response are all short term adaptations to get us through what could otherwise be a fatal outcome. And you're right, it's pushed to the very end. And at some point, biology says, ah, bug it anyway. It can't go any further. So, there is no point dragging this on any further. Doctors' ideal intervention point is not when the shock first starts, but at the point where it starts to kind of move out of control. Yeah. So in jobs as doctors of stopping dying, that's a very, very good job to do. Yeah. You can actually see the bodies that you save right on the spot. The interference of medicine going backwards into things that don't require that intervention. Like, for instance, seizures with temper- high temperatures. Yes, you know, very very
1: few ill effects unless there's a an underlying disease there like epilepsy. That's
0: right. It only happens in children. The outcomes are universally pretty good. <laughs> But we fear it. We call that It's epilepsy. horrible to watch. That's right. And and everybody Scary. feels that we should intervene. Everybody felt for 100 years there nearly, or ne- yes, nearly 100 years, that antibiotics should be used all the time because how terrible is it to have infections that you could make shorter mm. without ever realizing that there's biological selection. And there was also host weakening. What we now understand with high antibiotic use is the immune system does need to be tested to be resilient the next time and the next time and the next time. And when we're running early with antibiotics, we're doing a maladaptive thing for that organism. It looks good in the short term, but in the long term, that child is likely to get more and more and more of those infections. And you can see this in the way that medicine has uh, been defining repeated or excessive uh, infections in children. It's now 24 infections per year. It used to be six And so we're putting up with more infections by higher intervention and in the background, losing the fight against the very bacteria that we thought we were winning Mm, the mm, fight against. So it's not that medicine is doing the wrong thing. It's doing the right thing in the area of disease. When a person reaches a state of disease, the definition of disease is that's the failure of adaptation What we are talking about is signs and symptoms that happen earlier. And when we try and extend medicine backwards, what we lose is the very high ratio of benefit to harm that happens in a disease state. A heart attack, you do not want to be thinking of evolutionary matters. You want to be doing something to save the person, bust the clot, to get the heart functioning again. Same with a stroke. So this is not an argument against medicine. Medicine's job is to identify diseases, intervene as early as possible, break the nexus between that and deterioration. But the 90% of healthcare, what GPs see, what naturopaths see, what we see out in the general community is not disease, it's an adaptation. Now I come to this also, I've got to say, this has been an awakening in the area of chronic fatigue syndrome where the genetic studies being done now keep saying the same thing. It's not one illness. It's a breakdown of a a, a kind of adaptive response which puts a person into a hibernating state that is really difficult to shift them Mm -hmm. from. You apply the medical model and we give antidepressants. Work short-term, longer-term, people deteriorate further. We use antibiotics. We use all kinds of processes. The ones that work are those that work with readaptation of the organism. If you understand the person not as a diseased person, but a person through intolerable stresses for them, finding the least worst outcome, and that's a really important part of this. Bodies are good at finding the least worst outcome, not always the best, and so recovery may be sacrificed, but at least things don't break down, don't right. go wrong. Yeah. People with borderline hepatic function, people who are poor methylators, people who have got um, genetics for gluten, who are eating gluten, you know in other words, they're having an inflammatory response, they don't get disease straight away, and therefore they don't fall in the diagnostic categories of doctors. Doctors say, well, there's nothing wrong with you because I've done all the tests, Give those tests time, you'll get something that breaks down in the future. But at that point, the concept of evolutionary medicine is go back and think about why. What could be going on as the processes that this person's adapting to? The way you know adaptation as opposed to disease is it's a stable state of ill health. And that's a critical issue here. Medicine deals with instability. When things go wrong, they change very quickly over time. A person's deterioration is obvious. They're collapsing the shock response that you said right in front of you. But when people reach a repeated stage of chronic stable ill health, that's an adaptive state almost by definition. Yeah, yeah. And thought at that point about the whys is what doctors are not so good at. We know the drugs to treat the symptoms. We know how to give people relief of suffering and pain. What we're not so good at is working backwards along that train to say, why is this person adapting? What is the diet contributing? What is the environment? Are there toxins? Are there. So we're looking at those stressors on the body. And in fact, it's a really useful idea to go back to that Hanselio idea of say, let's identify the stressors. My practice, I will tell you this, every single time I see people with chronic fatigue syndrome, I see people with sudden deterioration of their health, autoimmune disorders, and they say, it happened five years ago. And my first question is, what happened six and seven years ago? And inevitably, the answers are there about what was happening in those years before. Long hours of work, new family, missing sleep, There is a a kind of load that comes onto a person, and for a while they do okay, and then the body says, no, this is not sustainable, and it drops something. So it will drop the thyroid, for example. What do we keep on seeing? We keep on seeing people who are clinically hypothyroid, but the brain is not asking for more thyroid hormones. You can say this person looks hypothyroid, but the TSH is 1.5 or 2, which is perfectly in the normal range. Why is that adaptation? The brain's given up asking the thyroid for more. The cholesterol will rise, the sterile hormones will drop, and the body goes back into a hibernating state. And my guess is that if you found a bear and tried to pull them out of a hibernating state, they also would not be happy bears. So when we're dealing with evolutionary medicine, we're dealing with root causes and going back and trying to change the substrate of that person's life, their diet, their sleep, their lifestyle, and getting the stresses off them as best we can. Sometimes we go back and we look at the genetics and we say, aha, that's what broke. You know, your DQ2, DQ8 genes, you are being inflamed every time you eat a glutinous meal that keeps on triggering the same kind of reactions. Those antibiotics that saved you from pneumonia five years ago, they're playing out now with a dysbiosis, which is becoming an inflammatory bowel kind of problem that we've got to go and beat. And so I, I think evolutionary medicine is fascinating because it's medicine coming back to ask why, and having whole different answers to the answer to the question of what is the disease state and what's the right drug for it. Hans Selye.
1: You've, yes. you've mentioned him three times now. Yep. Um, and the assumption by many particularly integrative practitioners is that it's the adrenal glands no, no. that shrivel and that it's the adrenal glands that we need to change, that we, we say so with the word support and the inference is to actually change their structure and function. Hmm. Newer research shows that it tends not to be the actual adrenals. And I'm confused about this because you and I have actually spoken on changes to the adrenal gland. But most of it speaks about changes in the brain and that the herbs and nutrients that we associate with supporting the adrenal gland are actually supporting brain structure and function. What's happening? My, My
0: view on this has changed over time. I really thought that there was a thing called adrenal exhaustion. I'm pretty convinced now that there is no such thing as adrenal exhaustion. The adrenals are regulators of particular types of function, great control of cortisol, aldosterone, they manage blood pressure, they manage uh, stress response, inflammation response. And when emergencies arise, the adrenal medulla unloads all the adrenaline that's required to keep your head above water. I thought of them as failing in the same way that we get heart failure, that the gland progressively gets overloaded. And I'm now pretty convinced from the research that that's not the case, that when we think we're treating adrenals, we may in fact be working against the very biological components that keep us safe, trying to stimulate something that has put us into a stable, low-level state that is survivable. So the adrenals are not dummies. The cortisone, I measure regularly. People under high acute stress, cortisol levels in the 6-700 range, the, the adrenals are pumping out stuff. Do they fail? No, they don't. In my opinion, we do see Addison's disease, but it's a whole different illness. Mm. It's an autoimmune illness. It's a catastrophic crash. Sometimes it's after doctors have given cortisone and the form of prednisone and the like for too long a period of time. And so there are disease states there, which if doctors fail to do something about it, that person is likely to die. But the 99% The adrenals are involved in an adaptive response, that whole sterile hormone, the cortisone, progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, the anabolic and the catabolic, so progesterone and the cortisone and aldosterone on the catabolic side, and the testosterone DHEA and estrogen on the anabolic side, the body's forever adjusting the balance between those. When under stress, the body closes down function and goes to what we call stress proteins, which stabilize the cells reduce function, and put you into a lower metabolic state. And that's a safer state to be in when the stresses on the person are intolerable. Our difficulty is not being able to read the stresses and not being able to read what the adrenals do. There's a catch to that. Though. Yeah. One, one catch that I would say is people with underactive thyroids close off that kind of conversion of cholesterol to the pregnenolone at the very early stages. People under high stress, you and with the thyroid dropping low, you do see cholesterol rise and all the sterol hormones, all of the ones based on cholesterol that regulate the body, all drop to low levels. It's like having no pay coming through into your bank account. You've got to squirrel it around and give it to the, the most needy things at that time. So often you do see that you do something to sort out the thyroid and the adrenal hormones come back to life again. But that said, if the thyroid is okay, the adrenals are very, very precise regulators on a second-to-second basis about what's going on in the body, turning things up and down, sacrificing function. And then when all works well, you get the cortisol produced, you get all of the hormones working to save you, Then when the infection's gone or when winter's gone or whatever the stress was on that body, they come back to the anabolic rebuilding, the testosterone, the estrogen, their sex hormones start to return to life and the person recovers. Now, I have a view here and that is the stresses that we were, I almost said designed for, but it's not designed for, the, the biology of humans that grew up in temperate climates had seasonality. Right. There was a winter every year surviving winter was a sine qua non. If you did not survive winter, you didn't procreate. You didn't have a next generation. So the cortisol and stress responses seem to be brilliant to get us through a three- to six-month period, but not a lower-grade stress that goes on for 25 years. And I think variety and variability of the environment, diet and the like is exactly what humans are bound to thrive in. And when we close that down, when we reduce... Um, diversity of temperature, when we we have air-conditioned homes, when we don't have winters, no supermarket in the world has a winter, then we put a different type of adaptive stress on the body, and that is those who are not designed well for that particular environment do very, very poorly, and then they rely on a chronic stress response which progressively closes down function, and people complain, I'm tired, my brain's not working, I'm putting on weight. Those type of responses... Are adaptive responses. They're
1: not diseases. But again, we're talking about glands that are not the command center. Glands. Yeah, you're right. We're the talking brain. about, the, they're under the control of stimuli from the hypothalamus. Yeah. So when you talk about, like, is it a case that, we've, that our definition is wrong? The treatment is fine, but our mm. definition of what we think we're doing is wrong. Yeah. Like for instance, antioxidants. Mm-hmm. I have severe questions about that term, antioxidants, as a, a one-way um, action. Yeah. We have redox partners. We use redox partners for goodness' sake. Look at CoQ10. Look at ubiquinone and ubiquinol. Yes. Um, so, so that's getting off track. The the whole thing is that. Um, We're under the control of the stimuli, the central stimuli command. Let's say it's the CIA or the Pentagon Mm -hmm. for a military um, analogy. Body at war. Body at war. And then you've got your forward command centers, you know, your Navy, your Army, and they're your thyroid, adrenal. You've got Mm -hmm. the immune system and and digestion, all that sort of thing. They're your forward command centers. They're under the influence of that central command. And they sense and respond to that or not. So is the case that you say we're, you know, are we doing the wrong things by stimulating the, adapt- the, the adaptive response? Yes. Um, is it a case that we're not stimulating, that we're nourishing? If you're nourishing, then you're doing something right. You are reversing stresses. So things and like caffeine. Is. Yes. You know, things like caffeine is a stimulator, but things like soups and rest and sleep mm-hmm. and um, you know, a, 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 a tepid bath, tepid sponging and, and that sort of thing. Are they more than nourishing types of actions?
0: They may be. Uh, I, I would step back. I think you're right. The regulator comes from the hypothalamus or hypothalamus of the pituitary. Hmm. And so the hypothalamus is a receiving center. What's going on out there in the body? a kind of regulator of incoming signals, aggregates them, says to the pituitary, mm, throw it up a bit. Hey, give the adrenals a bit of a kick. They're just uh, They're falling behind. And that processing center in the brain can be disturbed. Psychological distress, lack of sleep. There are a lot of things that can change the ability of the hypothalamus to stimulate the pituitary, to send out those messages to all the special forces out there. Even the insulin responses, those kind of messages that have to come out if the brain is under stress it will often say stressful time put together the kind of stress responses for the body save up all your energy put on weight set the metabolic rate a little bit lower change the heart around so that the demands are a little bit less and sacrifice non-essential function like short-term memory and concentration and the things that people live their lives through and so people who come to me will say my memory is failing. I haven't got the strength. I haven't. I fatigue very easily. I look at my dog lying on the ground and think, hmm, only humans have an imagined other life that they could have. In biology, when something makes you stop and rest, you stop and rest. Humans don't do that. Humans go to work. They keep on doing the things that they're doing. They keep on buying from the supermarket. And it takes some significant deterioration before they turn up at a practitioner to say, here's the bits that are going wrong. So it would do us well to think like a brain or to at least think like a hypothalamus to be able to say, what are the inputs here? And that's where a lot of the pathology testing is worthwhile. You can do the pathology and say, okay, you've got gluten reactivity. You have got inflammatory processes going on. Of course, the body wants to extinguish those because if you can't win, and you certainly can't win the fight against gluten, there's no battle to be won there. Every time you eat it, you're getting another stimulus to the T-cells and the regulatory cells. Then what's the best way? Turn the thermostat down. Just take it down to, instead of uh, mixing my metaphors here, but instead of running at 12 volts, how about you run at 10, 11, or 9? We will then say, I'm suffering symptoms and I want to be more functional. I have spent 35 years of my life trying to get that function back in people and finding that if I push too hard, if I use really potent drugs to try and push the metabolism back, I can make the person significantly and measurably worse. They get their function that they thought they want. Their brain is functioning, their muscles are functioning, and they go downhill and they do enter disease states. So yes, I recognize the hypothalamus is a great regulator of that, thyroid, all the steroid hormones around the body, all of those organs in different areas of the body. And I am fascinated by adrenals, but the nurturing response, the finding out how to unload the body is a discovery tour. It is not a drug. It's not a pill. It's very rarely going to be a magic bullet that comes along and says, oh, this now fixes all of the stresses that that brain has aggregated. And the reason I say that is I use, say, thyroid hormones. Yeah, I can give the people five or six times the dose of thyroid hormones that would be needed for a person with no thyroid at all. And they still do not register a higher metabolic rate. Their pulse is still sitting there at 64 beats a minute. They've adapted to the thyroid hormone. I'm giving something, I'm thinking, if we could just pick up your metabolic rate, this would work well. No, the body produces reverse T3. It produces things that will block the uh, thyroid hormone receptors and that makes the person safe. Now, it's ridiculous because I think I should be able to do that. I'm a doctor. I know better than the body. But I don't. The body is regulating that to keep a low metabolic rate. And until I discover why it's doing that, I don't have a chance by just giving, say, thyroid hormones or adrenal hormones. You know, doctors love cortisol. We, with prednisone in the 70s, we called it vitamin P mm-hmm. because everybody got better on prednisone yeah. until everybody didn't. And that was another very good way of understanding yes, you can win these battles in the short term, but the price you pay in the long term is ridiculous.
1: And, and there was a whole movement with integrative medicine to use cortisol. I know. And it was like the, as you say, vitamin P, mm. um, thrown around like candy, irresponsibly, in my opinion, sometimes. And Dr. Um, Andrew Heyman, made the very salient point about, hang on, if you've got uh, a, an infection there, you're just covering it up. Yeah, That's all you're doing. So what exactly, what benefit, what 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 charity are you offering that patient? Um, you know, it makes you feel good because you've got no symptoms. Is that complementary or integrative medicine or just medicine?
0: No. Cover up the symptoms quick. <laughs> you know? yeah, a- Andrew and another guy called Tom Williams as well. No. Very, very clever in this area to say, we're staring at the body doing something, trying to overwhelm it. If we try and overwhelm it, we take full responsibility for all body functions. And we don't do very well with that. I, I think those two especially have done the work to prove that there is no such thing as adrenal exhaustion. Mm. Adrenal exhaustion doesn't exist. Adrenal adaptation does. Yes. And I do think that when doctors get in trying to make adrenals work, we can only think one way. What's the final hormone made? Whereas the herbs clearly work another way. And as I've said to you a thousand times, one day I aspire to become a herbalist because I think the plants (laughs) are the most interesting areas of evolutionary medicine. How did we grow up in our environment with the plants and the herbs and the foods? And there are so so subtle divisions between these. How did we do it? How did people learn that you give a soup, a warming soup? How did people learn those kind of things? They were the molecules of life that surrounded us. The people who didn't benefit from those who couldn't respond to those probably are not with us. And we are the evolutionary selection of those, uh, those uh, humans that are left. So I have great respect for the traditional um, naturopathic herbalistic view that if we can do something to encourage the return to function, I agree with you Sometimes they say, the naturopath will say, I'm going to stimulate your adrenals, when well, maybe what they're doing is regulating the hypothalamus and pituitary. It probably works on whole different levels yeah. than what we think.
1: You know, you mentioned plants and, and plants don't just nourish the body as a whole, but yeah. now we're finding, you know, it's, the, it's majorly or interestingly poly, polyphenols, which help Balance our microbiota. Mm. It's polyphenols, which are these quote unquote, antioxidants, yes, or you know redox partners, whatever you want to turn them. It's plants that in in the form of herbs which nourish we thought the adrenals, but mm. now we're finding the brain. Here we go, the ginsengs. yes. you know we, so I find the problem is the terms we
0: use not the treatments we have. The terms we use and the conceptual frameworks we have. So medicine distorted a framework by being so powerful at the end of life and in disease states. We call our system a healthcare system for no good reason at all. It's a disease care system (laughs) and it's a very good one. Yeah. But the term healthcare is not something that medicine has ever got any evidence to back it up. And in fact, you see this happening all the time. What's the evidence that diet, you know, positively affects outcomes? It's very difficult to do trials when you don't have a disease state that you can rely on. Why do we choose people who've already had a heart attack to test statins on? Because they're really going to be likely to get a second heart attack. What do we really want to know? How do you get the other 6 billion people in the world to not have heart attacks? So we do come back to that over and over. A lot of the antioxidants, the so-called oxidants and antioxidants, are signaling molecules, nitric oxide, signaling molecule. These are telling the body messages, stories, that the brain and the hypothalamus are adapting to, way below our level of consciousness. But the one thing that we can all recognize that feeds into it is psychological and situational stress. Often we do not know the viral load that we carry. We don't know the metabolic loads that we carry. We don't know our poor responses to glucose or sugars in the diet. But what we can say is, my job stresses me. My partner stresses me. It's Valentine's Day and I haven't bought flowers or something like that. We can pick the points And we lay everything on that as though stress management or stress reduction is the only thing to do. And most of the patients that I see can pick the events that triggered something, but they were already close to the edge because that same event in another healthy person would do absolutely nothing at all. It would be a bounce-back phenomenon. So So I do go looking for... What are the weak spots that a person brought to their life? Everybody has trapdoors. Some are poor methylators. Some have got particular predisposition to autoimmune disorders. Some people have got lousy immunology, low IgA or something like that. Everybody brings weak points to life. There are no perfect humans. (laughs) If you you want CRISPRs, maybe there will be in the future, (laughs) but it will still be a human chosen perfect human. human, That's right. But we all bring our weak points. And if you're really lucky, life never exposes one of them. If you're born in northern China, you don't eat a lot of gluten, so you don't know that gluten reactivity and inflammation can trigger thyroids. the diseases that are responsible for uh, that are consequent upon that just never appear. But if you're in southern China and you do have wheat, those same genes can be very very difficult and cause inflammation out of control. Wheat's a whole podcast, but anyway, <laughs> <Wheat> <laughs> so
1: its not just one podcast. Hang away, we'll get we, off we track. So is is one of the major sort of issues facing medicine orthodox medicine here, that A, we've got the pressures of modern life facing people. They need to, as a pharmaceutical company, very successfully put on their cold medication, they need to soldier on. So people need to get back. We also have this convenience. Please help me with a pill. Mm. Mental attitude of our Western society, rather than I will do the foundation. Can you help me snip off the edges mm. so that so that it's all you know a nice little package, and I and I get well. And medicine is also faced with that problem of there comes a time when you need to act. There comes mm. a time when you need to intercede and help somebody. Where and, is that point? And, yeah, that that person is asking you for succour, and you need to say, how can I change that? So a problem facing medicine is that you need to intercede in a way that you can measure change. And is that one of the foundationary issues of medicine? You can intercede you need to prove and still change. go
0: looking for the causes, right? So people with headaches, I have no problem with people having migraine management with triptans i have no problem with symptomatic treatment of depression when people suffer depression you need to be clear that these are not diseases these are symptoms and doing symptom management with a with the cognition that this is step 1 to get you feeling better and then we find out why the headache why the you know why the blood sugar is rising why the weight is going on if you leave it with the symptom management you are waiting for the next thing to break in that person's adaptive response. If you give symptom, if you give sucker, as you said, if you give people relief, that also gives them a a reduction of stress. The stress of pain is a real thing and it adds to that whole load. So I have no problem with using symptomatic treatments Doctors, naturopaths, everybody have their favorites. It doesn't matter where you go. Herbs are used to relieve symptoms as well. It's the failure to go backwards one step further and say, why is there a headache? So there are people who have just fallen off horses, got their neck out, and with good management of the neck, their headaches will go. There are others who are getting migraines which are triggered by particular amines in the diet. Getting amines out of the diet is going to have a big impact on that person's headaches. So medicine's failure is not that it never thinks of it. It's that it thinks that symptom management and the person not turning up to your surgery is the same as a cure. And it's not. So people go to doctors over and over. And when I see them years later, I went to the doctor, I had the headaches over and over. Why did no one pick up that I had cervical spondylitis? Mm. And it's because the pain relievers worked. And then eventually the degenerative changes in the spine are sufficient that the pain relievers don't work. And then the doctor says, oh, you can't have any more of those because now you're getting bleeding from the stomach. And the cost of not paying attention to why the person was sick was always a problem. Yeah. The evolutionary medicine version of that is here's pain relief. Now let's find out why. Yeah. And so if that's this the way doctors question. and practitioners are thinking, if they say we have powerful tools which use short-term have got high levels of safety, and nearly all of those drugs used long-term have got costs that we almost forget about. Mm. We put people on acid suppressant. It works. For a couple of weeks, you can get a person to be really quite relieved, and then you get the problems of aspiration, increased respiratory infection, and progressively the person who's had just a, a simple gourd is going to go on to develop other kinds of problems. Now we Infections? have the national, yeah, the uh, the national health prescribing authority saying, please get people off these drugs. It's, isn't it
1: interesting? I love this. It, love hate. Um, you know, I can still remember reading MIMS when, when um, figure me, I can't remember the generic of Zantac, uh, Renitidine. Yes. When Renitidine first hit the market, and it was a statement in MIMS should be used no longer mm. than six to eight weeks. Mm. And yet over time, this convenience, and this is where I get back to the patients are driving this. Yeah. Um, you know, I want a pill. Um, I don't want to change. Yes. I, I just want you to change me. Um, I want a pill.
0: So there is a strange aspect to this though. People know they're not better, but they're not bad enough to keep seeing a doctor or yeah. keep seeing anyone else. Yeah. So when you ask people, yes, the doctor put me on antidepressants, which helped. Mm. Enough for me to not go back to the doctor. Or they put me on pain relievers, which helped. Or they put me on ranitidine. Or, or they a put stint. Me on, oh yeah. Or Nexium is a very, very popular one these yeah, days. Yeah. Very potent acid suppression. And of course they work. Why are drugs trialed? They're trialed to do a job. Yeah. But when you look at the long term for something like Nexium, you have to treat 24 people to get one benefit in the medium to long term. Yet every doctor will say, well, everybody gets benefit in the short term because it stops the acid production. Mm-hmm. But the cost of acid production stopping is poor digestion, dysbiosis. You get a whole cascade of events and you pay for that down the line. The doctor's failure to think about why would acid just suddenly become part of this? Why is there is there a dietary component to this? Is there another way of thinking about this? That's the failure. Ranitidine or uh, Nexium or any of the brands that you like, yeah. they, they work presoles. so well yeah. that they do not ask the second question. And we all just tend to forget that. The, the best practitioners that I know of ask to see a person when they're through their particular problem. So, okay, the acid suppressant is working. You don't longer have the gourd. Now what's going on? And if you ask that other question, you work your way down the dysbiosis. I get a chance to use stewed apple with probiotics and saccharomyces. Every doctor will have, or every practitioner who thinks about it, will have their way of going that extra step to take the load off. What does that do? Three months later, person's never needing Nexium again in their whole life. You control the process by giving a person a way back to a a level of stable normality, the brain's not a dummy. It does take time. The longer you've been sick, the more the brain almost fossilizes into this way of thinking that stress ain't going anywhere anytime soon. And so you put people on diets who've been sick with gastrointestinal post-antibiotic stresses on the gut uh, for 10 years, it can take a whole year to get them better. You get kids that have just had a few courses of antibiotics and are starting to run into all these problems, and you find that three months of treatment, and they are basically back on their way to normal health again.
1: Okay, but then you've also got the issue of if a doctor decided to go outside of the accepted guidelines, the college guidelines Mm -hmm. for disease, and instead chose to support the physiological reasons for the symptoms. Yes, then would they be not be considered to be flouting the guidelines and open up themselves for legal?
0: I think legal I think issues? doctors have to make their choices about what they do. There is a value of high turnover medicine in multi-doctor medical practices, no continuity of care, get the disease or the illness or the symptoms under control and move the person on. There is also a place for the integrative, thoughtful approaches which ask the questions and go back in detail in the history. I think they're two different jobs in medicine, and in many ways, integrative medicine is almost the wrong word. I think that there is a group of doctors who are saying life is more complicated than just the antibiotic-treatable respiratory disease. And if we understood what that was, we may be able to do something deeper and stop you turning up to the doctor over and over. That's a a common request from mine. Why is my child getting six or seven or eight infections? They get a bit better with the antibiotics and then they're sick again with the same thing. Nearly all of those are, you know, this group of Lewis non-secretus. secretors. is a failure of one part of the mucus production system to produce the anti-adhesion molecules, you can pick them out. They're 15% of the population and every doctor will tell you, you know, 85% or 90 get better with antibiotics. This rotten little 15% get worse. What is it about a lewis non You go back over that and you say, well, it's an anti-adhesion thing. So the way to manage infection is, in fact, with probiotics, competing organisms that can adhere better than the pathogens that are there. The others do well with antibiotics, but eventually get a dysbiosis if you don't do anything about it. So I come back to examples like that. Yes, we have to do our medicine. Every integrative doctor, we have a first priority of being a doctor, according to our training, doing the things that are evidence-based for the care of our patients. I believe we have a second obligation, which is to ask the question why, and that opens up a bit of a hornet's nest for most doctors. It means time. It means paying attention to the history, finding out what happened the year or two before a person got became unwell, and not wasting time and effort and energy on people who are going to get themselves better if you do absolutely nothing. The College of GPs does not demand we drug-treat particular things. When you get to disease states, there is an obligation to not fail the person in your healthcare obligations, right? We have a job to do. And no doctor, whether they decide to merge into homeopathy, integrative medicine, herbs, or anything else, Mm. loses that obligation. So we are first and foremost what we were trained to be, But then an obligation from my perspective for a doctor is to say, and why? Why this person? Why this person over and over? Now, I can make an argument that at that point we should be handing off and talking to naturopaths, traditional Chinese medicine practitioners. We should be looking for other ways, but I don't have enough expertise in those areas. I can deal with diet, lifestyle, nutrition. There's the areas that I'm trained in, environmental medicine and toxins. But we need that partnership between doctors and naturopaths, which keeps getting blocked at the level of APRA, who do you refer to, an insurable person, are they the best person? So a little bit of our problem at the moment is I can reasonably refer a person to traditional Chinese medicine, chiropractor, and osteopath out of the whole range of complementary, alternative, integrative other approaches. That's not great for me. So I have to learn enough to be able to provide advice to a person on where else they could look. There are great naturopaths around. There are terrible naturopaths around. There There are are great
1: doctors around. There are terrible doctors around. Accountants, mechanics. Yeah.
0: And, And the ability for our regulators and ourselves to pull ourselves together to say, here's what teamwork looks like. That you have people talking the same language. Uh, evolutionary medicine is one of those opportunities that the doctors don't know everything. We know how to stop the disease, but when we get people away from the edge of disease, providing health is not something that we were ever trained for. Doctors hardly even know what health looks like. We really, really don't. We keep on trying to give statins to people who don't need it and failing to give it to people who do. There are treatments that work and treatments that become, if you like, trendy, and doctors just progress with those... and Do- doctors are almost
1: like the the archetypical IT specialist. Nobody sees you unless there's a problem.
0: Yeah. Well, doctors have one additional problem, and that is there's an IT specialist who produces a program that's going to bugger up down the line. So a lot of the drugs we use right. work short <laughs> right. term and create business down the line. Yeah. What I'm the what drug. I'm really arguing for is think before there is a drug prescription. I don't think there's much more of a tendency now for doctors to say, no, antibiotics will not help mm. and they may do harm. Mm. Best thing of the whole microbiome project is that we're paying attention to the gut for the first time, whereas before doctors would argue, oh, how much harm can it do? We use antibiotics all the time. That's a that's a failure of thinking to say, if I don't see the problems, then there are no problems. The problems are of a different type. You give an antibiotic for the throat, person comes back with irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease in the worst case, you don't see them as linked. And the doctor's experience is too little to do that. So cover the gut, cover the um, nutrition, cover sleep, cover the things that in lifestyle are going to contribute towards health or ill health. Allow the brain to be unstressed by being clever about what we check for. What are the drivers of inflammation? What are the drivers of irritation? What makes a person poorly nourished? I see people who are deficient in nutrients that they should not be deficient in, people with tingling of the fingers and toes whose B12 levels are terrible, mm. yet they're eating meat all the time. And nobody thinks to ask, if you're eating meat, why is your B12 low? What they do is jab a person with B12 and say, well, that'll fix it. Mm. But if you are a meat eater with that, you either have pernicious anemia or you've got inflammatory problems yeah. on the gut. Go back that way. That way, It doesn't open a hornet's nest. It means there's simple advice you can give to get people out of having the diseases later on.
1: Uh, an oncologist that I've spoken with absolutely abhors the word integrative medicine, preferring instead to use the word supportive medicine mm. because all of the things that are used, exercise, dietary changes to include a heap of vegetables and, you know, some judicial supplements where evidence suggests there may be a benefit. Hmm. I just wonder if part of our really big problem with what we want to be accepted as is the frameworks in which we choose to label. Yeah. We need to think more about the labels that we give things. I
0: absolutely agree with you. How, how your mind thinks about something, how you separate off from other groups, well, we are integrative doctors. You know, we're not just your ordinary doctor. Every doctor from the Hippocratic version of medicine should be an integrative doctor. There is no other doctor. We have decided to go dolor or Kalor or or the kind of Roman way of thinking if it's not there to cut out puncture or drain or give some drug for then it's not of interest to us. Now we're growing back again to say, oh, hang on, diet, lifestyle, microbiome, all of these things are important. It seems like a big tsunami on the other side there that we've got to relearn. But it's not learning. It's cooking up with other people, whether they're dietitians, nutritionists, whether they're naturopaths, hooking up with the literature, which is emerging on the microbial benefits of, of the gastrointestinal tract, learning about oxidants and antioxidants. Yes, I, like everybody else, we had this vitamin C as an antioxidant, vitamin E as an antioxidant. We had a very clear division, and it was wrong. Mm. I absolutely mm. agree with you. Mm. However, those oxidant, pro-oxidant, the electron transfer is a signaling system that convinces the body to go in a particular direction. So it escalates up to have a biological effect. It works, but it's not the reason that we thought it works. Yes, that's right. And so playing with molecules of life, which are vitamins, nutrients, foods and the like, rather than molecules we've put into a laboratory just has a higher likelihood of no consequences down the line. It doesn't prove it. You can still get terrible outcomes with St. John's Ward or mm. you could get terrible outcomes with any herb. Mm. have one the other day where all the drugs work okay, but all the herbs have a very aggressive, inflammatory kind of skin rash response. Wow. And the person said, but I'm going natural. You no. have to say, <laughs> <No>. natural <laughs> is comes not the comes a time when you need to intercede. Yeah, yeah. and you break that chain and then you work backwards to say, now, that's interesting that all the herbs would do that. Let's understand why.
1: Yes, that's right. And I think that 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 to me is the biggest reason. And where I've got to say it sits with me being a nurse. Like I don't have this, dist, uh, no, I have a distrust, but it's more of the marketing. Um, but I don't have this avoidance of the use of pharmacological therapies. I have a... I prefer to say, well, why can't we optimise that use so that it has the maximum benefit and the minimal detriment?
0: And also, I. probably MCS. the shortest term of use as well. Oh, so a lot of these, nice, a lot of these drugs, you can time. belt a person back towards a, a salvageable state mm. by a two-month course of treatment or a, you know, two-year course of treatment. The problem that a lot of us have as doctors is, once something's working, we leave a person on it until something else breaks. Mm. And that's not thinking in any evolutionary way. That's just saying, oh, the chewing gum in the dike there has actually stopped it. That'll be okay. <laughs> chewing
1: gum is therefore yep, for broken dikes. That's
0: right. <laughs> and so when it bursts again down the line, we think, wow, what happened or what went wrong there? And we forget that the spack filler early on was only a temporary thing. Medicine gets you back from the edge, puts you back into a state where it's reasonable now to ask the questions about why. No one needs to ask about a car accident. If you bust your bones in a car accident, evolutionary medicine is just, yeah, bones break. But if you have developed something which has progressed over a number of years to a disease state, there was an adaptive point in the middle there. And understanding that is the next new link between what we think of as naturopathic medicine and what medicine thinks of as preventative medicine. And if we can meld those together, I see a combination of practitioners' knowledge and and, uh, tradition as being a very valuable thing for understanding evolutionary medicine. Evolutionary medicine is all about the herbs, all about the nutrients, all about the food and the environment, and medicine's discovering it again as if it is a new form of medicine. It's sitting in plain view from the very practitioners that we would love to have better qualified, better standards, the naturopaths having registration where we can refer people on and having standards of education which are a step higher than they have tended to be in the past.
1: As always, Dr Mark Donoghue, you make us think, you make me think, and indeed, I will go away after this podcast and think, well, what do you really mean by that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just an unclear podcast, <laughs> isn't it? So I'm, I apologise But I, the I look
1: forward with bated breath to the day where you say the words, I prescribed a herb at mm. this dose.
0: I do hand over to people who know what they're doing. <laughs> Once I know what I'm doing, I shall prescribe a herb. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.
1: Just how big an issue is water damage to buildings in Australia and what are the possible health issues from mould biotoxin exposure, like chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS? Join Amy Skilton in her comprehensive course, Unraveling SIRS WDB, which will give you the appropriate skills to both screen and manage your patients on their return journey to wellness. For more information and to register, please go to bioseuticals.com.au and click on the Education
0: tab.